And when you see these towns, and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? Welcome back to On Liberty. I am Adam, here with Adam House. Hey. How are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good tonight. How you doing yourself there, Adam? I'm doing all right. Uh, so we're on our, what, fourth episode of this miniseries here. And uh, this episode, we're going to be discussing uh, everyone's favorite topic right now, the police. Uh, not the band, the police, but the actual police that are probably standing right outside your door right now <laughs> um, for watching this video. <laughs> uh, let's see. So, Boy, I didn't, I didn't realize how much of a radical I was until I decided to research this topic to actually speak on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I haven't really done a whole lot of research due to um, work and life things, but I have a lot of, I think I have a lot of insight and, and, and unique perspectives into this topic. So um I guess I, I'll just give my portion and let let you divulge your research um, as much as as we need to. Um, I guess I'd like to start with a little bit of a story, if if that's okay. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So I have a lot of friends who are um, evil police monsters or just normal cops, whatever. But um, one of my friends I spoke to this week, uh, she lives in a small town in Missouri. So I called her up. We were just, we always chat over like text or whatever, but I called her up and was like, how, how are things, how are things going given the current you know, I mean, it's a small town, mostly a white town in Missouri. Like, um, so I mean, the uh, the effect that she's probably feeling from all this, because most of this stuff about all the protests and police brutality and all that stuff, a lot of it is happening in larger cities and probably doesn't reach into small towns that much, or so I thought. Um, so anyway, I call her up, I'm like, how are, how are you? And she's like, oh, I'm good, everything's fine. Like, yeah, how's the family? Family's fine, okay. Uh, how are you feeling during all this, all this stuff going on? And so we got into a discussion about um, police brutality or what, what, you know, is perceived as police brutality and racism and everything. And she said to me, <laughs> I don't believe that institutional racism is a real thing. Uh, she said, I think that um, when people, when you're, when you're able to raise your children better and teach your children better to, to behave better and to not go out and act a fool, more or less, 
then a lot of the problems that you see happening with society would stop. And I'm just in awe that somebody in uniform could be so blind to the reality um, that we live in. But I don't think that's a unique situation. I think that a lot of cops, um, or even just a lot of people in uniform in general, whether it's military, police, or anything, um, have a have a worldview that has taken years and years of um, convincing and manipulating and twisting um, an objective reality of uh, certainly institutional racism, but also um, just, I mean, it, it, historical facts and manipulating into a um, into a worldview that justifies um, violence effectively. So, I guess I open with that, saying that like, if you're somebody who is in uniform and you easily get triggered by, um, by like she does, by people um, pointing out, you know, objective facts to you, you know, maybe you should turn this off. Because <laughs> I have a feeling that based off of, uh, based off the conversation, based off our conversation so far, I have a feeling um, we're going to offend some people if they watch this. So, I guess I'll open with that and ask for your thoughts. You're muted, by the way. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> uh, didn't, I didn't want to interrupt you while you were speaking, That's have fine. any background noise or anything. So, yeah, I think you had a, um, it's a great opening introduction to the subject and a good story to kind of go along with it give it that personal touch that you know so much of this stuff um can be so impersonal right and yeah. people don't feel touched by it and then um when something kind of uh, an event happens and the powder keg set off man all that pent-up aggression it uh it changes everything so um so the first thing that I would like to say for those who end up watching, you know, regardless of whether they get offended or not, that's not really the point here. I don't know. Um, you know, one of my friends was apt to say being offended is fucking bullshit. You know, obviously the, the idea being that if you're offended by something, maybe you should give it some more thought, try to understand why you're offended by it and, yeah, you know, kind of go go from there and, and maybe you'll, you'll, uh, you'll work through some issues. So, that's, um, that's, that's a good point because, um, you know, on the other side of it, if, uh, if somebody were to say to a troubled person or something like, you know, if you're offended, if you're offended by what we're saying right now, then that means that you need to spend more time thinking about it. Well, this is us kind of scolding that troubled person being um, government 
law enforcement. And <laughs> right? This is our, yeah, I guess that kind of works. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Continue. Well, I mean, yeah, in a, in a way, yeah, I would phrase it a little different personally, but yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right on point. It's something I thought about coming into this. Okay. So let me back up and I'll tell a quick personal story. Okay. So when I was living there in Tennessee, there was, uh, they were putting these, um, random checkpoints on the state highways at, at, at times. Yeah. And there was a group, I forget the name of the group that was on, uh, on social media that was basically anytime one of these would pop up, they would, uh, help you to find and give you alerts so that you knew there was going to be a checkpoint in a certain area or whatever. And so what some of us decided to do was when we would see one of these random checkpoints pop up uh, by the state police, we would go out to the checkpoint and just go back and forth and keep, just keep going through it, you know, because it's an ID checkpoint. They're checking your ID. Right. Well, you know, for, for some of us, that's, that's a problem, you know, like the f fourth amendment being what it is and the constitution being what it is and right. your, your, your natural rights to, to freely travel and be unimpeded and exercising your civil liberties and individual freedoms, you know, like that's an important thing to some of us. So um, we would go back and forth through the checkpoint and show the ID every time. And so this, this, uh, this female, uh, officer took my ID the first time. And I asked her very cordially, very, very, uh, in a very friendly manner, uh, respectful manner. I asked her, um, something about the checkpoint, if she had been there long or how long they'd set up or how often they, something like that. And then the next thing that I asked her was, do you feel like this kind of a checkpoint thing is okay in this country in America? Yeah. And she, she, you know, she threw my driver's license back at me and threw up her hands and went and talking to the supervisor or whatever. Like she was just so disgusted that I would even bring that up as a possible critique of what was going on. How fucking you know? dare you question that? Yeah. How fucking dare you? Now there was a little bit of video cause somebody was with me and we mm -hmm. had different video angles and whatnot. And so there was a little video that got picked up by the local news. Now I looked for this video and I could not find it. Maybe somebody else that's better at this than me can find somewhere around uh, 2013 or 14, somewhere along in there, this, this checkpoint in Tennessee ended up on the local news. And basically they took a little snippet of me from inside the car, uh, at the point where the, where I asked the officer, um, if you think this kind of thing is okay in America. And the, the lead in that the, uh, um, that the newscaster used before they showed my clip was, watch this police officer about to get a hard time, you know? And, and then it was the <laughs> clip of me asking very politely, do you think this kind of thing is okay in America? And then she was the one that flipped out. It was the cop that was the one that lost her shit over it. Yeah. So, so this is something that I definitely wanted to touch on uh, anyway in this podcast. So I'm glad you mentioned it because I want the listener to understand it's not necessarily about trying to offend you or troll you or anything else. It's about getting you to think. And the first thing that I want the listener or the uh, viewer to understand is that your opinion does matter. 
Your voice does matter in this debate completely 100%. So people like, especially from the criminal justice and law enforcement and that community that want to tell you that want to kind of silence you, make you feel like your voice is not important because you don't have a law degree or because you've never been through officer training school or you've never been through the military or you've never right. had any kind of specialized training. Like some, you know, you have to have like, like you have to have some kind of special qualifications to have opinions about your rights. Right. And, and you don't. So the first thing I want you to know as a viewer and as a listener is that you should feel empowered because you are the boss. We, the people retain the authority and the power and the rights belong to us. And they're supposed to be working for us. Right. So the issue that I wanted to get to that you point that you pointed out and that my story kind of illustrates is that the uh, law enforcement community in the United States has enjoyed the benefit of the doubt for a long time. Um, now I do want to get into a little bit of history and philosophy and then start talking about the modern police state or whatever, but I'm just going to skip ahead to one of my, my points here real quick since we're already there on this one anyway the idea being that uh that you um you have a situation where after 9 11 2001 i remember when that day happened i was at work i remember i, I left work that afternoon uh and got home and watched you know watch the rest of it unfold, the events unfold on the news that day. And everybody in America on all the news networks and everybody everywhere was all, we're all saying the same thing. The world has changed today and it will never be the same again. And that was so absolutely true. I think the same is going to be true of this uh, post COVID-19 lockdown world as well. It's going to be, it's going to be fundamentally different in ways that, that we're not an, even anticipating yet. And so I think that's kind of what happened in 2001. I don't know if you remember one of the very first things that happened was all over the place. People were selling t-shirts and ball caps. That was, you know, FDNY and NYPD. And, right. you know, yeah. I support because, you know, because everything that we were getting from the federal government and our local officials and, the media and everybody, all they wanted to talk about there for a while was how brave and courageous and uh, self-sacrificing were those uh, fire to, uh, those firefighters and those police officers that ran into the towers on 9/11 in, in New York. And, and yes, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, those those people were heroes. Those people that died that day. You know, I, I hope that we forever memorialize those people and, and mourn the loss and understand it for the, you know, horrible act of, of evil that it was. Um, but one of, the, one of the consequences of it was we immediately started this police state thing. Uh, we gave a whole lot of new powers to the federal government to make war, to uh, police domestically, to have a surveillance state, to have uh, information gathering, you know, uh, basically bring IT into the next generation for the government yeah. and, uh, and, and have this big police state. And I think, you know, that kind of pro, that 
kind of blind love of the police and the protection that it promises to offer the police state. Uh, I think that kind of blind devotion has been with us for almost 20 years now. Yeah. And so basically for about the last 20 years, uh, we've done nothing but give a platform to the police and pro police people and anybody who wants to give more money to the police, give more uh, firepower to the police, give more training to the police, you know, let's expand their budget. Let's ex expand their labor pool, the work, the size of their workforce, uh, put more police on the streets and, you know, and so I think we've just gone so police pro police crazy, um, that we have completely gotten out of balance, but now I'm getting ahead of myself. Cause I wanted, I did want us to talk a little bit about, uh, the philosoph uh, philosophical underpinnings and a little bit about theory and, you know, some history before we get to where we are right now. But basically that's kind of a, a good point that I think we've already gotten to on this now. Yeah. So I want, I want to be clear that from my perspective, um, unlike most people right now, I don't think the problem with society is the police. I think the problem with society is government and the police are simply a symptom of a much larger disease. Um, yeah. and not that, not police in general, but when you look at, um, the war on drugs or police brutality or the military militarization of the police, um, the system, when I say the police, I mean the systemic institution of the police. Um, that to me is a symptom of the much larger problem that is an overreaching, overarching, um, uh, just destructive entity. Um, yeah. That we call it, we call government, but yeah. I want to make sure that no, I put that out there as, as a clarification no, I, before we go any further. I completely agree. And I, I think that's a good bridge for us to go. Now let's, let's back up and start back at the beginning now. Okay. Cause so, uh, and, you know, I like to do this anyway, when we do this show, let's go back to the fundamentals and start at the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah. For, so first of all, first of all, let's ask the question. Um, what is it that we really want? What, 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 when we have something like a police force, typically what is the need that we're actually trying to fill? So there's a human need and we're trying to fill it. We're filling it with the police. What is that need? All right. So I would say basically this breaks down into, into two things that most people need and want uh, when they think about the police uh, is number one, we want emergency services. So basically the idea is that if uh, you have a car accident on the interstate and you're hurt and other people are hurt and there's still cars coming down the road and there's people in harm's way, you want somebody with some kind of training for that type of emergency to be able to respond to that situation and get there quickly and be able to resolve that situation safely. Right. So, 
Um, and that's just one type of emergency service that I could think of off the top of my head. When we think about police, uh, you know, especially when you want to romanticize the police, I guess people think more in terms of, oh, I'm trapped in my house with a burglar inside and I've got to call the police to come rescue me from this burglar that's in my house. And while that does happen, that's a very rare kind of thing. Uh, for the police to ever actually respond to and, and for a situation to play out that kind of Hollywood way. It just, it doesn't happen that, you know, so again, I've got another friend that's apt to say uh, when every second counts, the police are just minutes away. Yeah. So, so, you know, there's this, there's a, anyway, there's emergency services. That's one thing that I think that we want the other thing that I think we're looking for is uh, some type of um, enforcement of justice and peace, right? Yeah. We, we want somebody uh, maybe in the community, some people do, some people don't, but you know, we maybe, we want some people in the community that know how to step into the middle of a conflict and into the middle of a, a conflict between people in the community and be able to de-escalate that conflict and uh, resolve it peacefully. So right. we want, we want peacekeepers. Right. Um, some people say we need that in the street. Some people say we don't, you know? Okay. So I think another thing that we look for when we think about police services is we're, we're looking for, when a crime actually happens, we want somebody to be able to track down the criminal. Basically, we want to be able to investigate, find who committed the murder or who committed the rape or whatever the, the, the crime actually was, uh, and that person got away at the time. We want to be able to track that person down and bring justice to that person. Right. So I think when we, when we look at it, from that perspective, these modern movements that we're seeing right now uh, of things like defund the police and abolish the police, you know, these, um, especially Trump and some of the people over on his side of things are just, they're calling that radical and they're calling that, you know, like so far, uh, like a ridiculous notion that we could even uh, you know, utter the words, abolish the police or defund the police, that that's so ridiculous. And really it's not. Um, so, you know, this goes now to more of the history part. Um, you know, the, the history of the police is that there's been times that, um, that we've had more police and times that we haven't but the modern police force is a pretty new thing. Yeah. And, uh, and actually before, before the civil war, um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of policing going on at all, much of anywhere in the United States. It, it was, uh, it was small and it was, it was very, um, you know, kind of low key and, and, and just not, not real prevalent in society. So there's this, um, the philosophical side of this, that, you know, as I, I speak as a libertarian, basically the idea is that I want to defend life, liberty, and property. Now, the utilitarian side of me says that if we need to hire people and 
um, somehow doubt delegate authority to them to do that for us, then you technically could do that in some kind of a voluntary community situation potentially. But basically, you know, what we're talking about here is a monopoly on the use of force. And, you know, how, how well does it work out when we place a monopoly on the use of force? How do we best get to that situation where we have peace and justice, uh, we have the rule of law, uh, uh, but without a lot of violence coming from the state itself? And so I think, you know, that's why right now movements like defund the police and abolish the police are really not that radical. And we really need to, to think about what these people are saying and even chime in and try to help be a part of the solution. I believe as libertarians, especially, uh, we need to be to try to be part of this solution of, uh, of pushing back and limiting the powers of the police state and uh, decreasing the size of the criminal justice system and its budgets and power anyway. So I've got a lot more to say, but I, I'll pause there for a second and let, you know, if you have anything you want to respond to or add there. Well, so I think, so you hit on it a little bit where I was thinking when you said the modern police state is really kind of a relatively new thing especially um, since the 60s, it's really sort of, we've really, like through films and TV and everything, romanticized like Law and Order and all these yeah. other cop shows and what's the Eddie Murphy police shows? Um, Beverly Hills Cop. Beverly and, Hills Cop. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, man. we romanticize um, law enforcement and in a way through, through, through media like that and through the war on drugs and especially through uh the war on terror and the department of homeland security and these militarization programs that um transfer not just equipment but um personality and um thought processes from the military to um, police departments all of that combined um Maybe not intentionally, and maybe not maybe intentionally, but I wouldn't like. I would like to think not intentionally, but it creates um, a perfect storm for a authoritarian um, government to basically, like you said, monopolize pretty much everything at the at the point of a gun. Um, yeah, I got a letter from the census bureau this year as did everyone else that said you're required by law to respond to the census um <laughs> are they gonna come show up at my house at gunpoint and have me fill out a fucking form like okay right. all right so that leads me to my next point which is most of the answers to, to a lot of the problems that i see um are um, political issues that need to be addressed one by one. So whenever you talk about things like ending the war on drugs, um, getting rid of the um, uh, qualified immunity, uh, ending the military, military, 
militarization of police through these um, programs. Uh, stop training cops like they're Navy SEALs. They're not Navy SEALs. I know Navy SEALs. And <laughs> I know Navy SEALs that went to become cops because there's not much, the, the line is so blurred now. Um, yep, whenever you're ready. All right, so anyway. So I think there has to be a distinguishing, some distinguishing trait or some series of distinguishing traits that separates military from police. If you train police, which we do um, as a society to be worshipped, to be respected, and then they go to all these training sessions that they're taught by Navy SEALs and Rangers and all these other special forces um, on um, crowd control and um, you know, dealing with resistance and, and everything out of the sun, use of equipment. Um, when you train cops to act like soldiers, they are going to act like soldiers. And if there's yeah. not an enemy around, they're going to find an enemy. Um, and that's going to be the person on the street. And if they're in a black neighborhood, that person's yeah. probably going to be black. <laughs> so um, that's... Yeah. That's just kind of where I'm at. I kind of lost my train of thought on what we're, we're, we're what topic we're on. No, that's <laughs> no, that's 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 good though. That's good though. And I and I would say just to piggyback off of that, there's uh, you know that there's there's two things that can both be true at the same time. And people are trying to uh, some people are trying to make it like you know they have to be one or the other. It's a false choice. Right. You know, like there's the one narrative is that there's systemic racism in policing and that's the whole problem uh, and why, you know, we see young black men being murdered by the police in such large numbers. Well, I think that that is true, uh, that the uh, black community has uh bad relationship uh as victims of police abuse over time and i think that's historically um just obvious but yeah. at the same time that's not the whole picture that's not the whole thing uh there is a a big police state and it's um it's precisely because we need to protect not only our own liberty, but each other's liberty that white people like me need to wake up when something like this George Floyd incident happens and look around and say, you know, we've got to chip in and be part of the answer too, because, you know, what the police will do to a black man today, they might do to a white man tomorrow. And they may skip the yellow man or do go to a yellow man and a brown man before they get to a white man. But eventually we are all interested, uh, all of us, doesn't matter what race we are, we all have an interest in not living under tyranny. We all have an interest in not living under a top heavy police state. Right. Uh, we all have an, an, an interest in being able to enjoy the blessings of liberty. So now touching on what you were talking about, let's go ahead, let's go to the screen share again now. I all got right. a video for us. You mentioned uh, Rise of the Warrior Cop by Radley Balco, which uh -huh. is a great book. Now, I am in the middle of another book right now. 
uh, very similar. And why can't I get the screen shared work? Uh, it says that you have me disabled from being able to use screen share. Try again. All right. All right. So here we go. Um, and this is exactly what I want to share. Uh, let me make sure. What was it I need to do to make sure everybody can hear audio as well? The three little buttons. Yeah, go up top. View options. And it's uh, share computer sound. There we go. All right. So here's this video I want us to see about another book called Tyranny Comes Home. At the dawn of the 20th century, the United States found itself at war with first Spain and then the Philippines. These foreign interventions set the tone for future American foreign policy. Writing around this time, Mark Twain gave an ominous warning about foreign policy by a great republic. But it was impossible to save the great republic. She was rotten to the heart. Lust of conquest had long ago done its work. Trampling upon the helpless abroad had taught her, by a natural process, to endure with apathy the like at home. Multitudes who had applauded the crushing of other people's liberties lived to suffer for their mistake in their own persons. The natural process Twain describes occurs through a framework we call the boomerang effect. In the absence of strong formal constraints, tactics used in foreign interventions abroad are later used to limit the liberties of people back home. Like a boomerang, the U.S. government aims its policies abroad only for them to return back to the United States. This occurs through the development of human capital, physical capital, and an interventionist mindset which are necessary to control others. One illustration of the boomerang effect is the militarization of domestic policing. Historically, the American police and military served two distinct functions. The police protected and served the American public, while the military defeated external threats. Over time, that distinction was blurred. In 1967, for example, ongoing race riots left the LAPD in search of more effective crowd control methods. Former Marine John Nelson provided a solution. During his deployment in Vietnam, Nelson served on a special force recon unit. Nelson had these accurate and aggressive tactical units in mind when he proposed creating SWAT teams to aid the LAPD in crowd control. Whereas the average Marine unit would kill about 7.6 people per man lost, a force recon unit would kill about 34. And whereas a regular Marine unit would initiate combat with the enemy only about 20% of the time, a force recon unit would initiate combat 95% of the time. This demonstrates the role of human capital. Intervening abroad provides a learning environment in which participants obtain a unique set of skills to coercively control other people. The skills developed abroad return home as experiences and training from foreign intervention are transferred to domestic positions. Implementing Nelson's idea required somebody with some rank and some chutzpah to champion it. Daryl Gates, a World War II veteran and LAPD inspector, filled this role. He understood and approved of Nelson's proposal and spearheaded the development of the first SWAT team. SWAT teams became more widespread at the end of the Cold War as policymakers focused on initiatives like the war on drugs. 
The physical capital of the military, such as tactical gear, assault rifles, and armored vehicles, was donated to domestic police throughout the United States by the federal government. This allowed even small agencies to create SWAT units. This combination of human and physical capital contributes to more aggressive forms of domestic policing. An example is the no-knock raid, where police officers enter the personal property of citizens without notifying them, without knocking. The number of no-knock raids has risen dramatically over time. Since 9-11, a series of federal programs have made state and local police increasingly reliant on the federal government for training, equipment, and intelligence, as well as subject to the federal government's rules. Political power. Domestic police, who once focused on protecting citizens, begin to view citizens as potential enemies who must be monitored and controlled, threatening their civil liberties. To learn more about the boomerang effect and its impact on domestic civil liberties, buy our new book, Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. To learn more about Hayek program research and graduate student opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's everything, they, that's everything I was just saying. Like, all in, that's like even better than what I, the way I could put it. So good. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, and 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 they make. Uh, you know, I actually watched some of their interviews, and I've been reading the book now. I'm about halfway through the book, and it's it's great. So one of the other things that I learned while I was reading the book and uh, and watching some more interviews of the authors was that there was this question. Um, as time went on after the Constitution and we got involved in foreign interventions with our military for the first time, uh, and we ended up, you know, in the Philippines, it was, it was called a liberation uh, from another colonial power, but then we ended up occupying the Philippines for many years right. uh, with our military. So, you know, what they touch on is the way that there were then constitutional arguments that we had to have and to settle for the first time about what kind of rights do we extend to people in foreign countries under American military rule? Do we give them constitutional rights or do we have some other form of framework? And basically what it boiled down to is that over time, we have occupied more and more countries around the world and we have not recognized constitutional rights for people beyond our borders. Uh, and we do put them under a different kind of, of rule of, of law, if you want to call it that, which it's really not. Uh, it's, the, it's a rule of rulers oh. and uh, a military rule. And, and that stuff, the, what they call the boomerang effect, is then all that equipment uh, that gets used in these conflicts uh, like we've had in the war on terror ends up coming back home some way or another, whether it literally comes back home from overseas or designers here in the States just start using some of the same designs and making some of the same equipment. Right. But the strategies, the tactics, the, the, the militaristic part of it, I mean, you know, as well as I do, if, if you and I, know that there are fights in a house and we have eyes on that house from the outside and we know we have five five insurgents in that house and we're using a military operation to take out those five insurgents 
it might be a good method for us to throw a grenade in the window and blow everything up inside. And then immediately after that grenade detonates, you and I come in different doors and we, we breach and we kill everything left moving in the room, right? right? That's a military way to take down a target. Now, one of these pictures I've got behind me on my slideshow is of a, a little baby. I don't know when it comes up in the slideshow here, but it's a little baby boo from Georgia uh, back several years ago where the police SWAT team threw a grenade. Uh, it was a smoke grenade. They, they were uh, serving a warrant on a house in Georgia and they threw a smoke grenade in the window in the middle of the night and it landed in the baby's crib and exploded in the baby's face. And this, so this is the kind of stuff that comes back to us when we unleash that, uh, we open that Pandora's box and unleash that kind of violence overseas. And so one of the other things that I learned about the history of this is that basically leading up to the Civil War, there were not that many police agencies of any kind working in the North. Uh, mostly in the, in the Northern Territory of the United States, you had uh, only in the big cities, uh, you started to have like night watchmen and you know, you might have some uh, light patrolling in certain areas or something. But for the most part, they might not even carry weapons. They might not even wear a uniform, uh, may or may not, you know, uh, and have a badge or whatnot. They might even just be like community patrols or whatever. Yeah. And so there, 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 there wasn't a whole lot of policing going on in the North, except in the big cities. In the South, policing was developing as, a, uh, uh, as an instrument or as an arm of slavery. And that's why there is systemic racism that goes all the way back to before the Civil War that still uh, exists because of our history. Never forget who they are. Um, there were basically on the plantations, the, the, the slave owners needed to control the slaves. So the way to do that for them was to uh, let there be patrols along the roads. There were slave patrols. Right. And the the slave patrols uh, patrolled the roads and, and they stopped anybody that might be a slave and they did, they checked papers and all that kind of stuff. So policing in the South developed out of that, of those origins, that is its history. And then as the, as the nation grew and the population grew and we came together, then you get up past the civil war and you get through reconstruction which Reconstruction was a time in our history right after the Civil War where uh, the Northern um, military basically occupied the South uh, for, 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 for years and, until you know, we could turn it back over to basically civilian rule again. Hmm. So <clears throat> what, another thing that I, I found that was interesting was that um, after the 1940s, like when, when people come back in 1919, um, when people come back from the First World War, when they come back from the Second World War, when they come back from Vietnam, um, you know, young black men who have been in the military are not as apt to, uh, to bow their head to white supremacy and to basically, you know, lick a cop's, lick a police officer's boot uh, after they've carried a gun in combat and potentially killed people overseas 
you know, a cop wearing a uniform ain't shit to us, right? right? Like your right. uniform, like, you know, I'm, I'm a combat veteran too. I'm not intimidated by a piece of cloth, a fucking uniform and a badge. I mean, you know, fuck around and find out. I might take that badge from you and shove it up your ass, you know, or take that gun away from you and shove it up your ass. You know, some of us are not, we're not scared of cops. And so the, these veterans would come back from these wars and we have like civil rights movements that start right after World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, and now we've had 20 years of the war on terror. There's a lot of veterans of, of this, these conflicts in Iraq and, and Afghanistan too. And so I think that's another reason that we're primed right now where we are uh, for another uh, revolution of rights that empowers the people even further where we are right now. Um, I found out that in the 1960s, that's where we started with police unions. Yeah. You know, up until the 1960s, you know, there, we didn't have a whole lot of public sector unions anyway. Uh, it's been said that for even Franklin Delano Roosevelt did not believe in public sector union because he understood that unions shielded workers from the consequences of bad decisions and, uh, and bad customer service. So the idea was to never let a public union like uh, the police force unionize because unions will shield them from accountability to the people they technically serve, the public. And it wasn't until the 1960s when we had a civil rights movement going on, they started to uh, establish what they called civilian review panels over the police. And it was when the police had to start being accountable to civilian review boards in their local communities, that's when they started organizing police unions. Mm -hmm. And so right. now, since the 1960s, the police unions have, have helped them to get everything from qualified immunity to being able to participate in the civil asset forfeiture and, and all kinds of perks and everything that actually puts them above the law. We're talking about, you know, how the history of policing brought us up to the point we are right now. So one of the other things I think I mentioned on this show before, but one of the other things that I would point out, you have the, the war on drugs. You mentioned this earlier, like the yeah. 1960s and the 1970s. And then we have the Nixon administration comes along and we have this whole uh, law and order kind of concept. And they start all these ridiculous uh, new laws uh, about the war on drugs. Right. So the war on drugs ramped the war on drugs ramped up the police state, gave them a lot more power, gave them a lot more uh, uh, resources, and uh, allowed them to to start justifying things like stop and frisk. You know, right. stop and frisk was one of these uh, programs that that the police started where. Basically, they would just roll through a neighborhood and decide that, you know, they would stop a group of people and fill them all up, you know, like checking them for shit like we do when we're on the mil in the military on guard duty at the gate and we got to fill people up, you know, like, so um, we know that, that looking over time as well, that, uh, you know, even like in going to the extreme when we look at cases where um, 
brutal regimes of governments have killed their own people. They very often incorporate the police to help them do that. Right. Um, you know, there, there were guards that worked the Nazi concentration camps. Uh, there, there, there were operatives that put bullets in the heads of lots of communists uh, in Asia, you know, so this and, and, and starve people to death and everything else. So um, what we get, what we get down to is that we're, we're trying to push back against the violence of the state, but the war on drugs started before I was even born. And I don't know what it's like to live in a country without the war on uh, drugs, right. but I want to. Right. Because I, it, it's not just about taking away people's right to put whatever they want to in their own body or not. It's all the other stuff that comes with it. You know, there's layers of this thing. It's like if you give the police officer justification to do one thing, you give them an inch, they take a mile. Right. And, and so, you know, I, I want to, you know, I want to kind of flip this whole culture of giving cops the benefit of the doubt and say, you know, isn't it more in the American spirit of innocent until proven guilty to give the American people the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, That's right. Who should be given the benefit of the doubt? But instead, we get we get the the war on drugs. We get the war on terror. Now, let me say a word about war making. In our last video, we talked about the warfare state, and we talked about that essay from Randolph Bourne in 1918, where he says war is the health of the state. Right. Well, when we look at the growth of the state and how top heavy it's become, and what a burden it's become on the people. We have to realize that um, it's not just when we talk about the, the war is health of the state, it's not just warfare as in like military uh, warfare for overseas battles and, and, and all that. It's our government likes to declare war on everything. And that's how they get the excuse. They talk the American people into giving up their freedom for security you know, we give up our liberty for security because they say, we're going to launch a war on poverty. We're going to launch a war on drugs. We're going to launch a war on terror. So I've got a government that goes to war with everything and everything the government declares war on only gets worse. Right, right. But they also, they also, you know, they also tax us and inflate the currency and everything else. You know, that's something else that we touched on on this podcast in the in the episode about the COVID-19 monetary response, the, the spending response, the monetary crisis, the fact that our U.S. military is so big and so expensive and our empire abroad, the American empire abroad is so big and so expensive that, uh, um, you know, we can't back the dollar with gold anymore. The dollar isn't backed by anything really anymore. It's the world's reserve currency for one reason and one reason only. Because the United States military is still the largest military and the most powerful military in the world. And we still handle over half of the arms that change hands around this planet. Right. That's the reason that the dollar is still the world's reserve currency. And as soon as that's not true anymore, then the whole shebang globally, then the, the whole shebang is up for grabs again. Right. Right. And that's, yeah, that's one of our biggest fears with China 
and they're growing um, not only military, they're growing economy. They're, um, yeah. Anyway, so I want to kind of bring it home, I guess, for anyone who may be watching or listening that is a police officer. Um, not even that, just anyone in general. So a lot of the cops I know say, well, we have to be there to um, either help people or to um, fix people because they can't take care of themselves. You as an individual cannot take care of yourself. So we as an agent of the government have to come in and unfuck your problems for you, whether it's domestic violence or, um, you know, the Karens that are pointing guns at people in the parking lot. Like I saw all of you from Chipotle, which is fucking ridiculous. Um, so cop, you know, anyone looks at that and says, wow, Americans are out of fucking control. Yeah. We need the police to come in and control people because we can't control ourselves. Um, yeah. Stop. Maybe you don't. So for normal everyday people, maybe don't be a jackass to one another and you won't have to call the cops. <laughs> you know, you don't have to. So, and you don't have to call the cops uh, for every fucking thing like noise complaints yeah. uh pets um because every single situation like that that starts out so small drug use you smell marijuana next in the apartment next door all this stuff it all has an escalation of force right so what starts out being a noise complaint could turn into a SWAT raid SWAT team raid like that right yeah. Yeah. so um yeah people getting swatted is yeah. a thing like, like there's a thing called getting swatted yeah yeah so yeah. from a very practical level i think um people not just cost but people in general should really reassess their actions and what they call on government to help them with if you're calling a government to yes. put out a fire if you're calling a government to help you put out a fire um you know maybe go to city council maybe go to your local city council and say instead of investing all this money into the police department, why don't we start paying our volunteer fire firefighters? Because most firefighters, especially in small towns across the country, most fire departments are uh, run by volunteers. So maybe instead of you know pouring more and more money into police departments, you start reallocating those funds into other sections of civil service that are honestly more important. Um, you, if you wanna justify the government's existence by saying who would build the roads, or maybe take some of that money out of the police department and put it towards fixing the roads or put it towards the fire department or put it towards literally anything else besides using the government as a tool to leverage um, against yeah. your neighbor. Um, so that's like a very practical sort of approach to it. But um, in all honesty, a lot of these situations that you see started out with just one minor little thing and it just escalated and escalated and escalated before you know it she might got shot in the fucking back and now they're on youtube yeah. and now everybody's rioting and all this other shit like maybe just stop being a dick to one another first and then you know maybe then yeah. you can justify narrowing down your your scope of law enforcement a little bit um this is it, that's that's and that's the 
perspective I'm really sympathetic to. Um, you know, the, the only oh, I think you cut out again. Thing, you know, one of the things that uh, from anonymous that you and I both know uh, that's talked about this and, and researched this for many years before Black Lives Matter even got started. But you know, to me, I'm a little concerned about the the messaging of the defund the police thing. I personally like the idea of abolish the police better. Uh, you know, just basically trying to completely restructure how we deliver emergency services and try to do it in a way that's more cost effective and efficient, both for the consumer uh, as, as well as, uh, you know, less violent and confrontational and um, reduces the, the presence of violence and, and, uh, and corruption. So, you know, if we can do those kinds of things, and I think in modern uh, society with technology, we can, but I'm a little concerned about the idea of like when people just say, let's defund the police. Well, yeah, I'm sympathetic to that, but my concern is that we defund half of their budget today, right? And five years from now, uh, George Floyd is basically old news to the American people. Right, like Michael Brown is right now. It, it, exactly. And 10 years from now, people are like, oh, yeah, the George Floyd, Rodney King, or who was that? You know, by yeah. that time, it's so far out that people aren't even really thinking about it much anymore. And to me, if all we do right now is just kind of cut back, you know, like uh, on the police budgets a little bit and whatnot, all that's going to happen is they're going to creep back up and, and inflate again. And in five, five years, 10 years from now, they're going to be every bit as big as they are now, if not bigger. So right. it, to me, it just it doesn't go nearly far enough. But now the idea of actually, because I want I want to share this one more time. Okay. Um, and this one has some audio with it. If I can move this to where I can, yeah, there we go. So this is uh, Dr. Robert Murphy, uh, Bob Murphy. He's a, a, an economist that I I like. I'm just going to play a minute or two here of uh, his episode. Um, of the Bob Murphy show. And here it is. This is what Bob Murphy has to say about this. You got to do the audio, I think. Oh, oh, did I not get the audio yet? No, I don't think you turned it on. Okay. So. To develop that culture, but if there was no, no checks, then that would happen or it could happen. All right. So likewise here, and that's why, by the way, I'm pleasantly surprised that the defund the police movement is actually, that is the right way of framing the goal, I think. And then, so they put their finger on what the issue is. Like they realized the only way we're going to bring these people to heal is to withhold payment. And so I think that's great. So my suggestion though, with all this is to say, what you need to do, it's not merely defund the police, it's that transfer the funding of police services to the public or to the community, if that makes you feel better, right. or to individuals. Return the funding power to the people. And I don't mean in their capacity as voters, because then that's still a go. 
All right, so Bob Murphy, he, uh, I guess we kind of lost connection just a little bit there. But what he was saying we was – We got the gist of it. We, yeah, we got the important part, yeah. Yeah, what he was saying was if – okay, so defunding the police, that's a good idea. But um, if that money is going to remain in the hands of government, then it's going to be used in other ways to oppress or to um, – basically rip off society so return it to people accurately yeah. yeah i mean so basically i think the idea and it's another reason that i think libertarians need to step up and and try to help provide some leadership in uh in reforming the the police uh and you know how we deliver services and whatnot because um you know it's as you aptly pointed out i think in our first episode we don't have a choice whether things are going to change or not. Things, things are changing and they're going to change and they're going to continue to change and they're changing in big ways. And if we sit quietly on the sideline and don't participate, then they can change in ways that may be even worse than what we're experiencing right now. Right. So that's why I say we have to, as libertarians, we have to help provide leadership on this. We have to lead with our principles uh, because our principles are pragmatic. Our, our principles, you know, I believe libertarian principles are even the, uh, uh, really the, the liber libertarianism is really the philosophy of the common man because um, it's precisely the most vulnerable people in any population, um, you know, that, that, uh, that suffer under uh, statism. When, when a state becomes tyrannical, when it, when it becomes um, aggressive towards people's rights, when it becomes irresponsible in its spending and whatnot, those people who get hurt first and the worst are those in vulnerable communities like poor people and minorities and the disabled. Right. Those are, the, you know, we are poor minorities and disabled and others, you know, we, we feel the, the weight of the state we feel it first and we feel it the worst and right. so that's why i think liberty is a uniting message that brings us together whether we're black or white or uh yellow or red or brown or whatever you know we we all have a common interest in not wanting to be ruled over and tyrannized and oppressed by somebody else so um yeah go ahead right i was gonna say if you haven't if you aren't familiar with like just how involved government not just police but government in general is in your life try doing something like starting a business and yeah or especially one that requires a license and then try and jump through the hoops to get yeah. <laughs> just just yeah. as an example i'm sure you could probably speak to that better than i can but it's been one of my detractors from from me um doing what I want to do because uh, there's business tax and there's licenses and there's um, yeah. property tax. There's yeah. everything else that goes along with. Yeah. yeah. There's so much risk involved. Well, so there was another, you know, you hit on something a little while ago too, that I want to make sure that, that I kind of also chime in on. The idea that this show and the perspective that I'm sharing, um, don't want to speak for you, actually. I only speak for myself here and 
mean, for anybody else. But uh, it's it's not a cop hating campaign. It's it's not a you know law enforcement officer uh, hating campaign. That's that's not what this is about. This is this is much more you know. I would like to say to to cops to law enforcement, you know, you could shut up and quit crying about everything for a minute. Because, you know, typically you're given the benefit of the doubt all the time. Every time the news media reports something on you, it's, it's to pat your back and tell you how wonderful you are and you get your parades and your ticker tape. And, you know, there's movies and TVs, as you pointed out earlier, Adam, there's movies and TV shows and everything else that glorifies and glamorizes the cop life and everything. So these guys, they get love all the time. Right. So the, those of us that are a little bit sick of that and want some balance in that and want to bring some rationality back into that, you know, let us have a minute here to talk. Let right. us have a minute to say, you know what? It doesn't have to be that we hate you as police. Right. So here, let me back up a second. Tell you, this is a little personal from me, from, from me. Okay. Now, as a kid, I grew up in the religious right. I've talked about that here before. I was taught to respect everybody from the preacher to the uh, uh, public school teacher to the police officer and everybody else. I was taught to respect them, to obey their authority, um, you know, basically to, to reverence them and, and look up to them as heroes. And I did. I did. Uh, much of my life I did. And even when the 9-11 thing happened, you know, I was like 23 years old. And I went out, I was one of those guys, I went out and I bought a hat that said FDNY, you know, fire department or whatever. Love the firefighters, ain't got nothing bad to say about a firefighter, you know. Yeah. Don't start killing, don't don't start choking black men to death in the street and maybe I won't have to say anything about firefighters. <laughs> uh, right? But police officers, the thing is, I, I grew up in an environment where I was taught to love and respect and revere and obey. And, uh, and I remember my time as a religious teacher, as a, as a licensed minister, I spent some time as a Sunday school teacher. And part of my time as a Sunday school teacher was spent with the little kids. Like, you know, we're talking like elementary school age kids. Yeah. And in part of the curriculum that we got to uh, one Sunday, part of the curriculum uh, touched on child sexual abuse and, uh, you know, instructed for the Sunday school teacher, who was me, to be able to give children options, you know, to try to, to mention to them in, uh, in a way that's appropriate, age appropriate, you know, for them to hear. Uh, that if, you know, if they're being touched in their private parts, if, if they feel uncomfortable with the way that another adult or somebody is touching them and the, well, the things that they can do, you know, trying to give them some help uh, and let them know that it's okay to, to tell somebody if you're being abused. And I remember teaching that class feeling 100% comfortable telling my Sunday school class of little elementary uh, school age kids that if a situation like that were to arise, that they could talk to a police officer, that they should tell a police officer about that. And at that time in my life, I still had no qualms about, you know, the police being these upright people of, of, uh, uh, of integrity. And, you know, they're just, they're, they're always benevolent. And, you know, they're just, 
which is another problem, right? The same as with us military guys. Um, a lot of times, whether you're in uniform as a cop or as a soldier, you get put up on a pedestal and kind of romanticized as like this, you know, perfect thing. This, uh, and, and, and so, you know, I think part of what we're seeing right now is not just iconoclasm uh, of, you know, old Civil War memorials and monuments, but iconoclasm uh, of the cops and the policing profession in general. And I think that's probably appropriate right now that we be iconoclastic a little bit about it. Um, you know, when I think about the uniform, so this is my final point. This is what I, the last thing I wanted to, to get to. And so I'm going to beat my hobby horse here again. On this limited series podcast that we've been doing, almost every, every episode, I've mentioned Donald Trump's recent tweet to, uh, where he threatened to domestically deploy federal troops against Americans. Uh -huh. Now, here's another reason that I think that is just so out of the realm of anything we should ever consider, that we, the American people, should commit ourselves to uh, government of, by, and for the people, uh, that we should commit ourselves, recommit ourselves to civilian government, and that we will not turn over uh, American law and order to this uh, authoritarian nationalistic future. That we, we don't want the federal military, as painful as anything might become in this transition phase that we're in as Americans right now, I'm telling you, uh, deployment, domestic deployment of federal troops will only exacerbate the situation, whatever it is. Everybody yep. will suffer. Every, every child, uh, man, woman, and child in the country will feel the suffering and the grief of it before it's over with. We would regret it almost immediately if we ever did it. Now, here's one of the reasons that it cuts me to the quick, uh, that it, 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 it really offends me to the core that Donald Trump even suggested that. One of the reasons being when I wore the military uniform as a federal uh, uh, service member, when I was stationed here uh, in the United States on post, I had non-commissioned officers over me who would be sure almost every weekend before they would release you, uh, sometimes almost every day, uh, you know, and some of the NCOs were better at this than others, but there was always this reinforced uh, idea that it's better if you don't wear your military uniform off post yeah. because that's not really what it's for. It's a work uniform. You wear it while you're at work. So, you know, like the idea was don't go wearing your uniform off post. You know, there's just all kinds of bad, just badness. Right. And but they would say, if you find yourself in a situation where you're in uniform and you're off post and you're among American civilians, you better maintain your military bearing. Right. Because if it gets back to your command that you did something unbecoming to your uniform while you were in it among civilians, you better believe you're getting hemmed up. Yeah. You know, so... And the, the idea being, and, and I took pride in that, and I think a lot of soldiers do. We take pride in the idea, in the idea that if Americans are in trouble, 
let's just say hypothetically for an example, let's say a small ship, a small boat, like a sailboat with like, I don't know, seven people, nine people on it. It's out on the ocean and the sailboat gets caught in a storm and it crashes on an island where there's a bunch of drug lord kingpins with guns that are going to kill them for finding out their little operation. Okay, I'm building a good Hollywood story here, but this is my hypothetical to make a point. And these Americans find themselves like in a hostage situation on an island uh, under guard of armed troops. Now, I want to be the kind of American soldier that when American people think about me, when they think about me in my uniform, they think about a situation like that and they think about how they would feel if they were in a situation like that and all of a sudden they heard a bunch of explosions and a bunch of uh, uh, US soldiers and Marines with, with, you, you know, with American, uh, US uh, American patches on our sleeves and are you know carrying our M4s along with us that a big bunch of us surround them and protect them and save them from the bad guys. How right. good would they feel when we show up? We're the good guys, we're the heroes that we show up, we kick the bad guys ass, we save the American people and ya ya, you know. I think uh, you just hooray. I think you just described the ending of Jurassic Park 3. Okay. There we go. There we go. <laughs> You know, that's, that's what I think, you know, when you think about the American military uniform and wearing that uniform, that's the kind of feelings that I think people want to associate with that uniform. Yeah. And I think those of us, the majority of those of us who have worn that uniform at some time or another, those are the feelings that we want to have about that uniform, feelings of pride and, and the, uh, the, the, the fact that, um, you know, our uniform represents that we're willing to step up and defend human life, innocent life, that we're willing to step up and defend life and liberty for other people, that we care about people that much, that we're willing to risk ourselves in order to protect the lives and liberties of other people. And so this is why, this is another reason why it offends me to the core that Donald Trump would even suggest that he might domestically deploy federal troops against Americans. Now, just a quick history story. There's a former president named Andrew Jackson. And I read a biography of, of Andrew Jackson when I was in school many years ago. And one of the things I might, somebody needs to Google all this stuff and look up the details, uh, fact check everything you hear in our shows anyway, because sometimes we might misspeak or something. All right, fact check us, Google us, educate yourself. But my understanding is that Andrew Jackson at one time while he was young, uh, while he was a kid, that he was actually overtaken by a British soldier. And that this British soldier uh, had a knife and he cut Andrew Jackson and left a scar. Now Andrew Jackson carried that scar on his physical body with him for the rest of his life. Now let me ask you something. What do you think for the rest of his life when Andrew Jackson would think back on what a British military uniform looks like? What kind of feelings do you think that evoked in him? 
to think about a British soldier when he was a kid. Right. You know, it's trauma. It's called post-traumatic stress. Now, I'm not going to sit here. I can't sit here and diagnose that Andrew Jackson suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. My guess is that he probably did. And I, I would almost say that it takes somebody who's suffering pretty greatly uh, to participate in something like he did the Trail of Tears, that he was responsible for the Trail of Tears. You know, I almost think that you, you have to be, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the torturer suffers just as much as the one being tortured. But anyway, the point of it being that if and when American troops, look, Kent State right there, that picture, Mm -hmm. That was when that was when the National Guard was used at Kent State to put down protests. Right. Now, those people that were at Kent State that day, when they looked at uh, uh, the National Guardsmen in their uniforms after that, from that day forward, what kind of emotions do you think that evoked in them when they saw that uniform for the rest of their lives from that day forward? Well, they didn't see a fucking hero. They saw a fucking, uh, they saw a, uh... A uh, terrorist, effectively, right? So exactly, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And that's the thing. When you look at a fucking uniform like this here, like a police officer yeah. dressed up like this, and they're targeting you in the streets of a peaceful, a peaceful protest, or uh, if they're coming at you, uh, you know, are you still there? I am. All right. Can so, we continue? <laughs> anyway, so if they if they pulled you over, and I said, I smell, I smell weed. No, I, I don't have any weed. Oh, okay. Well, just sit tight for about two hours. See if we can get the canine out here and see if the canine can smell weed. So that you've you've by just small actions, you've tainted your uniform. Um, and that's what the uniform is right now. The, the uniform of a police officer is a tainted rag that is, yeah. uh, it's, it's a throwback to a better time. And that's yeah. pretty much it. Um, and, the, and the idea being, do you want to be a part of the solution or a part of the problem? You know, right. I didn't like that. Uh, I know it's getting ready to pop up on the screen here again at some point here in the middle, uh, in a minute. But this, uh, the thin blue line flag. Yeah, the very, like right there. there's one of them. Yeah, that's I hate that fucking thing. I hate that fucking thing every time I see it because I know it doesn't represent the the Bill of Rights or anything about American freedom that I believe in. When I see that fucking thing, I think it's a desecration of the flag that I wore when I wore my uniform as as a soldier. Yeah, but I agree. you know we we could go into a whole thing about you know how I how I uh, also. Uh, participated in an illegal occupation of somebody else's country, so maybe my uniform wasn't all that untainted either. Well, we're all, right? yeah, I mean, if we participated but, in that, if we participated in those sorts of things, we're all, you know, we're yeah. all maybe not equally as guilty, but certainly we've we played our part, and right. uh, and so we, I, we can all change. We can right. all change that right there. That's one of the, that's that's part of the power of the message is that we can change and that. Uh, uh, we can turn things uh, and make them different. So it, it's it's like uh, like the founders of the of uh, those people who fought the American Revolution and then founded the country. They were not perfect people, right? right? 
Thomas Jefferson, I've got a quote of his up here because I think it's important for this episode that people understand that uh, when the people fear the government, there's tyranny. But when, pe when the uh, government fears the people, there's liberty. Right. So if you live in fear of the police right now, you live in tyranny and something's wrong and something needs to change really bad. Right. And if right. the police, if the police live in fear of us, that's actually a good thing. That actually means they understand their place. Right. That means that they know that they better not fuck with us the wrong way because there's enough of us who are armed and have the training and intelligence and understanding that, I mean, take your local police department and put them up against every combat veteran in that community. Do you think that police department stands a chance against the combat veteran community in, in your local area? No way, man. No way. Yeah. So anyway, anyway, the, the idea being that the uniform does for the, for the police, the uniform seems like a tainted thing. And so there's all these police that are uh, jumping ship right now. They're yeah. quitting the police force. They're, you know, they're walking away from walking off the job and whatever. And I say, good, go more power to it. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. Bye. 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 Felicia. Bye. <laughs> Felicia. Bye. Okay. That's a good thing. All these guys that are walking away from the police uh, profession right now, that's a good thing. The reason that they're walking away is because they're so fed up. And we know that most, if not all of them are walking away from the profession right now because of the backlash of the public who is fed up with them running around like tyrants acting like a street gang. And that's basically what the American public did was we looked around back like during the uh, uh, the 80s and, and times like when the, the war on drugs during the Reagan thing was at its peak and all that. We looked back on that time and we had, we had uh, gangs in the streets that basically owned the streets. You know, gangs like the Bloods and the Crips and the Latin Kings and so on and so forth. We had all these, these gangs and I think it was another situation. Republicans and Democrats were to blame, right? So Trump is a fascist dictator, but Joe Biden was the author of that crime bill that's got so many black people in jail right now. So again, the Republicans and Democrats, neither one have done anything to fix this. Instead, they've, they've continued this war on drugs, the war on the American people. And what we've got is uh, uh, a situation where it's a good thing for these cops to walk away because basically what they're saying by walking away is that, well, if, if we can't run through these neighborhoods, roughshod over these neighborhoods, and we can't violate people's rights, and we can't treat people, you know, uh, like they're of a lesser, like a, a less class citizen, or whatever, then we don't want to be a part of the police anymore. Well, good, then leave, because yeah. that's not the kind of police that Americans are going to tolerate anymore. So fuck you and goodbye. Yeah. Adios, compadre, you know? So it's, I am not at the least bit upset about people that uh, walk away from the police profession right now. Now, for those police officers who are committed to protecting we the people, and the lives and liberties of the people, not the state, not right. who are interested in the state, not in state power, 
but empowering the people, all right? We actually want to decentralize and devolve power from the state and empower human individuals, private civilian people. That's right. what we want to do. Now, for those police who want to stick around and be part of that, of reimagining and restructuring how we might be able to deliver uh, uh, emergency services and crime prevention and reduction and, and justice in a way that is beneficial to the American people, that saves us both time and money, uh, as well as confrontation and violence. If you want to be part of the answer in reimagining and restructuring how we can do that, then please stick around and help us be part of the answer to the problem because that's what we need right now are solutionaries. I had, a, I had an opportunity, I got invited on another show the other day called, just simply called The Liberty Show with Kevin Fortune. And they had Maj Touré, uh, founder of Black Guns Matter, uh, a uh, gun rights organization where Maj Touré basically goes around the country into urban areas where, you know, traditionally Democrats and, and progressives have tried to talk uh, minority urban communities out of their Second Amendment rights and out of firearms ownership and everything else. And, and Maj Touré came out of the Black Lives Matter movement and started Black Guns Matter. And he says, it doesn't matter what color my skin is, my black gun will protect my black life. Uh -huh. And so... Um, I got to talk to, to Maj Touré on this show the other day, and uh, it's, it's the same thing. He, you know, talking about, like, he goes into these cities, into these urban communities like that, and challenges the old narrative that's been there for so long, and talks to people about learning about their rights, about flexing their rights, uh, about responsible and safe gun ownership, and hell, he'll even put guns in their hands and start teaching them uh, hands-on how to, how to shoot and how to start being a safe and responsible gun owner. Um, now, I started many years ago donating money to the National Rifle Association. You know, I started as a young man doing that. Uh -huh. And then the NRA, they kind of got wishy-washy on some things back in the day when uh, Harry Brown was Senate Majority Leader. And anyway... Uh, not to go into that story, the point of it is I decided that I needed to find a different gun rights organization that I wanted to support. And so uh, I left the National Rifle Association and I found the GOA, which is the Gun Owners of America. And I started donating my dues. Instead of paying dues to the NRA, I started paying dues to the GOA. Well, back a few years ago, the GOA uh, sent me an email saying that they were supporting uh, the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Well, I knew from studying what Judge Andrew Napolitano had said about uh, the police state uh, since 9-11 that Brett Kavanaugh was one of the primary legal architects of much of the uh, security and surveillance state the NSA and all this stuff that we, we let happen now, like he was the author of a lot of that and provided legal uh, argument and justification for a lot of this Orwellian police state stuff. Right. 
So I decided then and there, if the GOA is going to dip their toe into that and be for tyranny on one hand and, you know, supposedly for gun rights and gun freedom on the other hand, then I've got to go shop around for another gun rights organization. The NRA couldn't cut it for me. They couldn't keep their nose out of other politics. The GOA couldn't cut it for me. They couldn't keep their nose out of other politics uh, where they were supporting the state and supporting tyranny. So I had to find another organization where I could send my dues to support uh, a lobby or a, a special interest group of some kind to, to represent my, you know, my support for gun rights. And I, I realized that all this time in both the NRA and in the GOA that uh, the black community was just completely really underrepresented, you know, um, yeah. And, you know, and I was seeing more all the time, like this was after Walter Scott and Eric Garner, these uh, black men who had basically just been murdered in cold blood by the police and got, you know, and police getting away with a lot of this kind of stuff too. And I realized like Maj Touré that, uh, um, you know, a lot of these minority com uh, communities have been given a disservice by liberals and progressives and Democrats who have talked them out of their Second Amendment rights, who have talked them out of gun rights and empowering themselves with the right to bear arms with the means to defend themselves. And so I found uh, the National African American Gun Association. It's uh, NAAGA. And I actually did join them, but while I was looking um, through them, that's when I found Maj Touré and Black Guns Matter. So in 2018, I actually became a member or started, you know, paying my dues, the money I used to send to the NRA and then to the GOA. I started a couple of years ago sending to Maj Touré and Black Guns Matter. Um, and I think that's an important part of this. You know, some of the other pictures in my slideshow here, uh, it'll pop up from time to time. You'll see a, a picture of Malcolm X on there. You'll see a picture on there of... Uh, uh, of the Black Panther Party. Uh, there's something else to point out about the Black Panther Party. You know, the actual, um, the, the formal name of the Black Panther Party was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. That's what it was. That's what it started as. That's what it, st what it was about when it started. It started as the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Just like in that other episode we were talking about uh, the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. and the, the peaceful protesters were out there, but they were also being heavily guarded by groups like the Deacons of Defense or the Deacons for Defense. Right. So, you know, there, there's people, they understand that this is not about attacking the cops. This is not about, uh, you know, and I certainly don't advocate that anybody go out there and ambush cops and start killing cops. That's not the answer to this problem. Right. You know, the, the, the answer is actually to reduce the violence, to de-escalate. And unfortunately, we don't have political leaders that can do that right now. So we, the people, once again, we, the people, are the ones that have to step up right now in this age that we live in here in July uh, of 2020. And we, the people, have to be the ones uh, you know, to declare our independence from tyranny and, and say that, uh, that, you know, our, our leadership has failed us 
but Again. we're going to take we're we're going to take we're going to take control. We're going to be lead, we the people are going to be leaders. We're going to commit. So here's the thing. Here's here's the common theme between George Floyd and this police state thing and the idea of using federal troops to put down these uh, this insurrection, these insurrections like in 92 and this year. The common theme is that we don't trust each other. And when we, when we fail to trust each other, and when I talk about trusting each other, I'm talking specifically about civilian government. I'm talking specifically about self-government. When we fail to trust each other to work through our problems and to come about a civil resolution, then we invite fear and we invite wrath. We invite all the destruction and chaos and heartbreak and suffering that comes from unleashing violence on our neighbor because we don't trust our neighbor anymore. Right. Black and white people have to trust each other right now. The worst thing that could possibly happen in this moment between uh, for race relations in this country would be for us to start dividing ourselves along racial lines over this George Floyd thing or over this Donald Trump thing or any of the rest of it. You know, that's the worst thing that we, what the, the government is not afraid of white power. The government is not afraid of black power. The government is afraid of when this one over here and this one over here quit standing opposite uh, of each other and fighting each other. And when they start to go like this, right. And you put that black hand and that white hand together. Now we've got real power. Now the government has something. Now the state has something to fear. And so that's what I hope that we do. I hope that the state can be feared because when, when the government uh, fears the people, there is liberty. And so I want libertarians, people who are also sympathetic, sympathetic with Black Lives Matter or any other kind of police reform or abolition movement, criminal justice reform, abolition movement, civil libertarians, you know, everything from the ACLU to the NAACP, you know, bring it all, man. We need everybody together right now. Look past our other differences and lead with our libertarian principles and we can change things right now. Liberty yeah. will bring us together and we can change things right now. Yeah. So I want to make a final point speaking, I guess, directly to, um, well, you already made it a little bit, but speaking directly to like law enforcement and uh, like the NSA, people in the intelligence community, anyone that has a, uh, a stake in the, um, national security and law enforcement apparatus to reflect on what it is that you do day in and day out and the way that you execute your duties um do you do it like does 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 how you participate um enhance the power of the state does it enhance the power of the civilian population that you're supposed to be protecting or monitoring or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, 
who do you work for? Um, if the answer is you work for Uncle Sam or you work for the city or work for the, for the county or the, whatever it is, um, if there's a way that you can manipulate your role and, and shift, the, uh, shift the dynamic there and uh, turn it around, then do that. And that means that when you pull somebody over and you smell weed that you don't arrest them or you don't call a canine, then so be it. Um, you know what I mean? Just it's those little, those little actions that's going to redeem, um, that perception of law enforcement. I saw a video the other day where, um, it has to happen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I saw a video the other day. These, these two cops pulled over this guy and it was a black guy. And the guy was like shook, like, Oh shit. I don't even know what I did. Right. And then, um, like he was like nervous and you can see he was shaking and everything. So it turned out that like the cop, the cops pulled him over because his girlfriend, I called him to like surprise him into like letting her, letting him know that, or yeah, letting him know that she was pregnant or something. So she, they dropped off like, you know, baby crap or something, but like, okay, why is that guy shook to begin with? That guy shook because your fucking image and the community is, is destroyed. So it doesn't matter that, that it was a good message at the end of it. You know what I mean? That doesn't matter. It matters. Yeah. What matters is that first feeling when you see cops in the rear view yep. is, okay, how am I fucking right now? When you yep. pull up to a, like right now in Hawaii where I am, um, they're going to have police officers out all over the city for uh, um, like COVID enforcement measures. So like they're going to be pulling people over and setting up checkpoints to ask you where you're going and what you're doing out because right. you're supposed to be in your house right now. Like you're not serving the purpose. Like, so we're going to celebrate 4th of July in uh, this sort of <laughs> state of um, suppression more or less. Um, right. I think, yeah. So I guess the ultimate message is how, how are you participating? If, if the way that you're participating, um, serves the purpose of the government then turn it around or quit and if you quit yeah good on you you're better off yeah. for it um yeah there's a lot and, more and productive things sorry there's a lot more productive things that we can be doing as a society than ticketing each other making money for the government and locking each other into prison cells there's a lot more productive things we could be doing uh yeah. Like building spaceships and going to the going to Mars. That's <laughs> <That'd be awesome. laughs> right, so. right. Yeah. Imagine if we focus yeah, our imagine if we focused our efforts on something more positive. What we could accomplish. Yeah. Sorry, I'll stop yeah. interrupting you. <laughs> no, you're good. No, you're good. I don't I mean I don't mean to interrupt you. So I talk too much anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean I think you're I think you're right and uh just proves the point, you know, the people are people are done with the police state you know it's like we got locked up from the the COVID-19 lockdown everybody's in their house and like a whole lot of people the algorithms start to kind of come together because everybody's watching the same Netflix at the same time and all that kind of stuff so you got like more people than usual watching the same kind of programming and listening to the same content and whatever more than ever you know like and then um when 
when George Floyd was murdered and there was this huge backlash, you know, it was like before him, you know, just point out before, uh, before George Floyd, it was only, you know, it was right before that, that Ahmaud Aubrey was, was uh, uh, basically lynched by some guys in a pickup truck. Right. 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 So I, I think, you know, part of what we're seeing is that we were all like, we've all been locked down and told that, you know, most of us are non-essential to the economy or anything else. And so basically what our government has done to us is lock everybody down, spend the biggest amount of money, the biggest uh, spending package in, in history to bail out the banks and the con politically connected wealthy and tell the rest of the country that you're basically non-essential and we don't have time for you and you need to lock yourself in at home and stay there and don't come out until we tell you otherwise. All right. right? So that was the situation that the government put us in, in a situation like that. And so I think everybody's sitting at home and, you know, obviously tensions and anxiety mounts anyway with everybody locked in. And then, you know, there's all this talk during the COVID lockdowns about how the world's going to be different and nothing's going to be the same again and how we can build a better world after this is over. And we get on the other side of this, we'll be better than ever. And some of the problems that we've had, we'll, we, we won't have to have anymore. And, and uh, we're going to have new thing, you know, just like this optimism about uh, how we could bounce back after this COVID lockdown is over. Well, instead of that, uh, the American people being told like, you know, you're non-essential and we don't have time for you. Oh, but we still got time for white men in a pickup truck to lynch a black man in the street. We still got time for uh, a group of police officers in uniform to lynch a black man in the street and spend eight minutes and 46 seconds killing the man. Yeah. You know, that's basically, that's like a, um, that, that, that's like an amateur Muay Thai fight. You know, when I was, <laughs> when I was in Thailand going to, yeah. So nine, nine minutes can be an amateur Muay Thai. Some amateur Muay Thai fights are nine minutes. You go three, three minute rounds. So three minutes and then one minute break, second round, and then a one minute break, and then a third round. So you get a total of nine minutes for an entire fight. So, so Derek Chavon leaned on this guy's neck with him begging for his life for almost an entire amateur fight length of time and nobody stopped him. And I think that day is over with. Yeah. I think when people saw that you can spend almost when the American people, yellow, red, black, white, brown, whatever, when the American people saw that cops can spend nine minutes with their knee on your neck knowing that they're killing everybody in that area, knowing that they're killing that guy and nobody steps in and does anything. Nobody helps him. Nobody saves his life, that there's a problem. Just like you were talking about when you see flashing lights, if you feel fear of your government, if you feel fear of your government enforcers, then you live under tyranny and you've got to swallow a, hollow, a, a hard pill to swallow, get past your cognitive dissonance and realize that you live under a tyranny. If you feel fear of your government and its enforcers and its police, then you live under tyranny. And, and 
uh, that's not the way it should be. The, the government should be afraid of the people, and that's when there's liberty. So I don't think there's going to be any more of this nine-minute lynching of a black man in the street by white officers with a bunch of people standing around with video cameras just recording it and not intervening. Because I'm going to tell you right now, this old boy, if I had been there and I had been armed, Derek Siobhan's brains would have probably been splattered all over that fucking pavement because I am not going to stand around and let somebody be lynched and murdered in the middle of the street by any goddamn police officer or any, any fucking body else. But because I took an oath to the constitution to uh, protect the American people as well. And we, the people can always depend on my rifle being pledged to the lives and liberties of the people. I'm going to defend life and liberty. I don't even, I don't care if it is a cop or any other agent of the government. We're just not going to put up with the police state anymore. That's where we are with this. That's That's true. I, I know I probably sound awfully radical, you know, and coming from a guy that as a child believed completely in the police, idolized the police as a Sunday school teacher taught little children to, uh, to take their, you know, to take serious matters of criminality to the police and felt okay with that to the position that I'm in now where I happily say, fuck the police.
part of it But you'll never be a part of it自动呈现出来，而总是由人来解释的。六月五日清晨的这一瞬间，将成为永恒的历史象征。后来，它消失在人群中，下落不明，连姓名都难以确认。对于全世界千百万的电视观众来说，这一时刻的含义非常清楚